You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fabulous Feinstein's 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder, please take this moment to silence your cell phones, and also there is no flash photography, please. Please welcome David Sabella. Welcome to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast, where we take you behind the scenes at Broadway's Supper Club. I'm Nella Vera, the club's director of marketing, and today's guest is renowned for his years on Broadway in the musical Chicago. In addition to originating the co-starring role of Mary Sunshine in the 1996 revival of Chicago with B.B. Newworth, Anne Reinking, Joel Gray, and James Naughton, David Savella has starred in countless shows off-Broadway and in the regional theater, where his credits include A Little Night Music, Seesaw, Godspell, Merrily We Roll Along, and the Lisbon Traviata, among others. David is an acclaimed voice actor, and he has starred in several network television cartoon series, including Peter Pan and the Pirates for Fox and Teacher's Pet for Disney. In addition to being an award-winning actor, he is also a classical singer and has had starring roles at the Virginia Opera, Utah Opera, and Lincoln Center. David Sabella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So let's dive right in. You originated the role of Mary Sunshine in the current Broadway revival of Chicago, which is now celebrating its 25th anniversary. Wow. What was it like to help create such an iconic role within this legendary show? It was an experience like none other. And I was spoiled because it was really my first Broadway experience. And, you know, so you think everything's going to be like that. But it was so unique. It was unique from the very first moment of my audition, I have to tell you. But during rehearsals, especially, Rob Fisher made a point to say, "Okay, we're just totally rearranging your song, which I had never heard of being done. He goes, no, no, your voice is different and you're more of an opera diva. And so we're making Mary an opera diva. And they completely rearranged the orchestration of the song. So I really did feel that I was helping to create this character, her way of being musically and on stage. It was really thrilling. And just to be a fly on the wall in the room with Joel Gray and B.B. Newworth and Anne Ranking and Jimmy and Marsha and everybody in the cast who had worked with Bob Fosse, who has had a legacy. It was like, let me just sit here in this corner and observe all this and soak up this masterclass. And it was years of that. Amazing. Amazing. Sometimes I bemoan the fact that I'm getting older, but one of the things that I feel so lucky about was having been able to see so many of these iconic productions. So it's not so bad being this age if I got to see, you know, I got to see the first cast of this revival and having Mary Sunshine be a countertenor was such a stroke of genius. I think so much of Candor and Ebb is brilliantly subversive. Had you been very familiar with their work before you went into the show? I was familiar with their work as a voice teacher, as a lover of Broadway. I was familiar with their work. There is a difference between being familiar with their work and being familiar with those two men and hearing right from them. And during rehearsals, because I did other stuff with them, too. I did some workshops for The Visit and some other projects. And so during rehearsals, John would just get up and run to the piano and like compose something, incidental music, or we need this for a scene change, or let's change this. 
it's such a living, breathing organism. It changed my relationship to what I thought Broadway was, because Broadway is not a document. It's a living, breathing organism that changes through the years. I just saw the reopening of this show now. It was September 14th. I went to the reopening, and the show is like brand new because they changed things. They flew in a whole new set piece. There are new costumes. It was incredible. So Broadway is one of those things that is literally living and breathing throughout the ages. Our, our production in 96 was very different than 75. Fred Ebb told me once that in 1975, Chicago came off more like a pastiche, like a comment on the legal system. And in fact, it was written in response to Watergate. But in 1996, and certainly today, it comes off more like a documentary. And it's a comment on our social structure and the paparazzi, the warping of the legal system, the warping of fame, fame versus notoriety, which has become so prevalent in our society. It is so vitally relevant today and always has been. It's, I think, why the show has legs now into its 25th year. Who would have thought? Yeah, when you see it, you think that this is a contemporary show. You don't think that it's a show that was written in the 70s. You know, it um, abs that's absolutely true. When I did the show for the first four and some years, I did it on Broadway and then I did it in Vegas. And then I took some time off when my first child was born and I would sort of sub in as needed till about 2006. So from 96 to 2006 was very heavily involved in that show. And in that time, no matter what happened in the newspapers, the audience walked in with that. And suddenly the show became about that. Like when we opened, it was O.J. Simpson. That was the big deal when we opened. And then there was, and I don't know if anybody, if your listeners remember this, but there was the German au pair who always professed her innocence, that she mm -hmm. did not harm that child, remember? And for those weeks, the Hunyak got the biggest ovations. The foreigner who professed her innocence. And then there was the death of Princess Diana, chased by the paparazzi. And the show took on a whole new meaning with the reporters. And whatever happens in the newspaper, the audience walks in with that. And because of the minimalistic costumes and staging, you can place your vision onto that show, no matter when in time you are. And that's really key to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, like you said, it has such a power and such a relevancy, uh, even today, and probably for many, many years to come. Since originating Mary Sunshine, you've returned several times, as you've mentioned. Has your performance changed as you revisit the role every time? Are there new things that you find? I would say certainly, yes. I think I don't, it's not even the goal to try to make it be the same. You bring who you are to it now. And I have not done it for many, many years. The actor who's playing it now has a, does a brilliant job and I, I wish him all the best. He's brilliant at it. But as I get older, you just come at it from a different perspective. You can't say those words at my age now, as I used to at 30 something, you know, you know, it's just you, you, those words come out of you different. You wear them differently. You wear the costume differently. You wear the makeup. Everything just wears differently on you. Some things get richer and deeper. Some things you let go of because they no longer serve you. But whatever is part of you is really good for the character. That character has evolved. Fantastic. Yeah. So you've seen your share of Roxy's and Velma's. Are any of them particularly special to you? 
Well, listen, I got to start with our first, with Anne and Bibi. I got to sit on stage as we were directed to sit on the sidelines there, the premise of Chicago being once you enter the world of Chicago, you're trapped. The ensemble and the featured performance are kind of trapped there. And we sit on the sides and watch. And that was one of the great blessings of my life because I got to watch Anne Ranking every night do Roxy. And I got to watch B.B. Newworth do I Can't Do It Alone every single night. And there's an image blazoned in my head of at the end of Roxy and with her hand outstretched, her body, she's lying on the floor and her legs are outstretched in one direction and her arm is outstretched to the other as she's reaching up for the spotlight. And even from the back, that is a vision I will never forget. And B.B. spinning around that chair, you know, oh. making it look effortless, making it look almost in slow motion. How does someone do that? You just, you learn every day from that. So that was our primary cast and for me, still the best. And I'm going to jump all the way up to this opening cast of September 14, which was Anna and Bianca right, as Roxy and Velma. And both of them bring such a wonderful energy, a very, I think, a different energy, a contemporary energy, a fiery energy. I was able to look at the show almost as if I'd never done it. and went, wow, that's a really good show. In fact, I brought my 14-year-old daughter who had never seen the show. Wow. Because by the time she was born, I was out of the show and we just never went back. And I brought her and at intermission, she turned to me quickly. She went, it's not over, is it? I'm like, no, no. She goes, this is a fantastic show. And I've taken her to a lot of Broadway. Yeah. And I like, you like this? She goes, yes, this is fantastic. So the talent, the intention, the focus, the laser-like focus that was placed into us by Anne and Walter through the legacy of Fosse, and now with his opening cast placed in again, Gregory Butler, I think is the official associate choreographer. I don't know his title, but he sort of carries Anne's legacy forward. And he came in and did a full set of rehearsals. Walter came in and rehearsed them all again. And you could tell that this cast had touched that, had rubbed the cornerstone of that legacy because this cast is phenomenal. Now, other great Roxies in my life, I loved Mary Lou Henner, I have to say. I love her as a person and as a performer. She's going to be at 54 Below. She is. Yeah, very soon. I can't wait to see it, and I really recommend everybody to see it because she's dynamic. She's such a generous performer and authentic performer. I loved every minute of her being in the show. My brother Ernie was her Amos also. Oh, how um, lovely. It was a wonderful time. And I have to say... One of my favorite Roxies, for I think very different reasons, was Melanie Griffin. Melanie Griffin came in. I was just telling somebody about Melanie Griffith in the show, which I said was completely insane, but also brilliant at the same time. And it shouldn't have worked, but it I was astounded. Yes, that is exactly that is exactly right. Now, I will say that the reviewers mentioned that she had, quote unquote, an occasional relationship to pitch. That was the review that was published. But uh, it's okay. It's okay Because when she stood on stage and said, I'm older than I ever intended to be. 
she had you in the palm of her hand. She was Roxy in a way that you can't act. She yeah. simply had lived the life of Roxy and brought all of that with her. She used to mark on the wall the little check marks of every show she did. She never missed a performance. She was a team player. She is a generous woman. And her husband, Antonio, at the time, her husband, Antonio, was doing nine right across the street. So mm. we would have these wonderful parties. And she really made it sort of a family affair. It was a celebration for her to be there. And so it was a celebration for us. But on stage, she was so quietly authentic that you just wept. You're right. It shouldn't have worked, but it really did work. I worked on Chicago when it first opened. I was part of the marketing team. I was a baby marketeer. For Pete Sanders? No, for the marketing team. So they had okay. hired my marketing firm. Great. We worked with Drew Hodges, who created the look, yes. which is also all coming together. That kind of look for the marketing was just had never been seen before those black and white photos, right. the women looking right at the camera. I mean, just stunning. Yeah. The extension of the legs and the arms. Oh, everything was so perfect. But I just remember thinking, when they announced Melanie Griffith, because I had also been an intern for the Weisslers, thinking this is another stunt. Oh, my God. And I went to see it out of just curiosity and could not have been more blown away. Sometimes you have a performer who maybe yeah. is not trained or doesn't have a theater background, but they're so perfect in the part that yeah. it works. And the Weisslers were very smart with her and with the show. I had done the show in Las Vegas for the millennium over 99 and 2000 and into 2001. And they asked me to come back to Broadway in 2002 when Melanie was starting. And they asked all of the original principals who could to come back for Melanie's reopening, right? For Melanie's opening. And they wanted her to be surrounded with as much of the original energy as possible. And I think that was really smart. It was great of them to do that. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminded me, remember when Madonna was in the Evita movie? Yes. That when that personality, that life fits the part. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And you also, it's kind of a cool twist, but I guess Chicago's also a family affair for you because what was it like to share the stage with your brother when he covered the role of Amos? Well, my brother Ernie Sabella, who has a long history on Broadway, 40 years or so, and many, many, many shows, almost as many shows, he was Joel Gray's first replacement as Amos Hart. And he and I got to do the show on Broadway and in Las Vegas for over two years. And it was phenomenal. And I do detail a little about this in my show, because in my show, I use the music of Chicago, but also then tell my story, not only my story with the show, but my personal story. And Ernie is, of course, my brother is my champ. If anybody knows us, I owe everything to him, really. So my opening night of Chicago on Broadway, Ernie's sitting in the audience. And he is so nervous and so excited for me that just sitting there, <laughs> just sitting there in the audience, flanked by Faith Prince on one side and, oh, I forget her name, but Faith Prince on one side and another wonderful famous actress on the other, and I'll think of it in a minute, he got a bloody nose. He gave himself a bloody nose oh, just no. because he was so excited, right? <laughs> and flash forward to two years later, or some years later, when he comes in his Amos Hart. And on his opening night as Amos Hart, during intermission, just before he's about to sing Mr. Cellophane, 
I got a bloody nose. Oh my gosh. It runs in the family. <laughs> We're tied together. I speak to him almost every day and anybody knows him. He's sort of like the mayor of Broadway, you know? Yeah. And a legend also. He is. He truly, truly <laughs> is. I just, I stand on his shoulders in more ways than one. So it was a blessing to do that with him, to get to watch him do it. He repatterned Amos in a way after Joel. I think he went a little bit more towards the Barney Martin mold of the earlier iterations of the show. And he really made it his own. And there's something devastating about Amos because he is the heart of the show. He is the only person in the show who consistently tells the truth. And that's something very specific that, that John Kander and Fred Ebb and Bob Fosse built into that show that Amos is the only character who consistently tells the truth and is, like I said, the heart of the show. Even Mary Sunshine, who you think of as the goody two-shoes, she's not because she's deceptive in the fact that we find out she is actually a he. That was why Bob Fosse did that with that role. He was looking for a way to give Mary Sunshine an edge to make her a little deceptive. And the text was so goody two-shoes, like, what are we going to do? And the original actor, Michael O'Hockey, auditioned on stage, I think also at the Richard Rogers Theater. And he started singing the top trills of the bell song from the opera Lachme off stage. And he walked onto stage singing the high note of the bell song. And Bob Fosse stood up and said, that's what we're going to do with Mary Sunshine. Wow. And Fred Ebb told me that. So actors, and I try to live my life and my teaching life like this, actors bringing the best of what they do, the most unique of what they do, the most authentic of what they do, that gets noticed. You contribute to the creative process when you really authentically bring yourself and don't try to be what you think they want you to be. Really be yourself in that moment. That's what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So... It was great. And I just want to end that little thing with working with my brother, Ernie, what is a lifelong memory and something I really hope to do again. I really do. it. He's a joy. Anybody who works with Ernie Sabella knows what a joy it is. So I'm in the Ernie Sabella camp, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> you were also involved with another Kander and Ebb show, The Visit. Can you talk about that? That was one of the greatest honors of my life, even the way that occurred. One night after the show, John Kander came after Chicago, John Kander came bursting into my dressing room, literally kind of threw the door open. And he said, David, Fred and I are writing a new musical and I'm writing a role for you. He said, every time I hear this character's, every time I think about this character, I hear your voice. And what are you going to say to them? I'm like, okay, just tell me when to show up and I will be there. <laughs> it took several years for that to come to fruition. And we did our first workshops of that in 2000. And as you know, it didn't come to Broadway until many, many, many years later. We did our first workshops in 2000 with Angela Lansbury in the lead role. And then later with Cheetah Rivera. And it was an incredible show. The show you saw on Broadway was a wonderful show, but the show that they wrote was even better. And when nobody's ever seen that show, I did a two-act musical comedy. And you know what Kendra never really good at is taking a dark subject, like Kiss the Spider Woman, right, as they do, and infusing it with the moments of comedy. 
And there were fantastic moments of comedy in this story. And it worked, I thought it worked brilliantly. And it underwent several transformations. So what got onto Broadway was sort of an extended one act, and it was a much darker show. Mm -hmm. In the original version of this show, there's a knockout duet and a Kandranab duet like class from yeah. Chicago, like the grass is always greener from woman of the year, like the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree from the rink. It was one of those, right? And it didn't make it to Broadway, but I'm going to tell you, I'm doing it in my show at 54 Below with Jana Robbins because we're bringing it to the public. Oh, it's a fantastic, fantastic show called You Know Me. Fantastic duet. Oh, so Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's what I love about working at 54 Below, because last night I saw Melissa Errico's show and she sang a song that was cut from Follies that I had never heard. And I thought, how could you cut this song? It's so mm -hmm. fantastic. We do get to see these little gems for whatever reason someone decided shouldn't be in the show, but they exist. <laughs> yeah. In addition to your work on the stage, you're also a voiceover artist. How did you get started in that business as a voice actor? Well, that was several years ago, and I had a manager at the time, and you know, I was young in my career, and I had a manager, and right out of college, I discovered by accident this sort of soprano voice that I had, and my manager called me up late into the evening, maybe 12.30 or 1 in the morning, and she said, I just saw this notice for animated TV series, and I'm going to send you up for it, but who they're looking for are opera divas. I'm like, What? She goes, yeah. She goes, but I, th I think I'm going to send you up for it. So it was Peter Pan and the Pirates with Tim Curry. And the villain of that week, along with Tim, was Frau Broomhilde Broomhandel. And <laughs> she had to sing in original keys excerpts from Die Valkyrie and from Aida and Carmen and I forget what else, but it was several things. And I went in and I knew them all. I had done all of that repertoire because I had worked with La Grande Chena for five years. So I, and I was an opera singer long before I was on Broadway, right? So I knew all of that repertoire backwards and forwards. And I walked in and literally in the waiting room, there are these middle-aged women in the fur stoles and they're actually opera singers. And the director called my name and I stood up. He goes, you're here for broom handle? I went, yeah. Yeah, I am. You know, as a 20-something. Yeah, I am. And he said, okay. So I go into the studio and I start to sing. And the first thing was Die Valkyrie with those big swoops up to high C's. And he's got his back to me because he's facing the speakers in the control room. And the window is behind him, right? So I'm singing and I begin to sing. And he immediately turns around in a mad dash. It keeps turning around from speaker to me to make sure that it's me actually making <laughs> the sound. And I finished all the excerpts and he was like, wow. And I got the comedy and I like said the English revisions of the word. Like there was no, I'm an opera singer. I don't do that. It was like, yeah, we're here to make fun. So let's yeah. have fun. So I got that job and that led to several other I sort of became known a little bit for character voices and weird and quirky voices. I did a, I think it was a parrot or something. I forget on the thing, Teacher's Pet with Nathan Lane. And it was fantastic. Oh, oh no, it was a, 
and a Donald Von Drake, something like that. I forget, you know, they're many years ago for me by now, so I forget. But it's one of the funnest things I love to do like this. You don't have to dress up. You just yeah. bring yourself and you talk into a mic and you act funny and crazy and it works, you know? Yeah. It's, I guess, also being a counter tenor, it's always surprising people having that voice come out of. I'm constantly surprising yeah. people. Yeah, it's strange. And now the primary bulk of my work is just, you know, regular tenor. Yeah. Like I sing like Tony Bennett, like that kind of stuff. And this show, of course, is going to be all that. I'm doing very little of the Mary Sunshine voice just to get into that song. But even doing Chicago, I was in the cast of Chicago and I had a recital at Carnegie Hall already scheduled, already planned. So they let me out to do that. And it was on a night off for the show. So everyone in the show came to see. And the work you do as a countertenor in classical music is very, very different in deportment, in the way you present yourself, in the style of sound that you deliver, etc. And I remember after the recital, B.B. Newworth came up to me and she's like, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> I, I don't know how you did that. You know, I don't know how that comes out of you because it was so different yeah. than what I do on the Broadway stage. And I want to relate that to a story about our recording, recording the album for Chicago early on, you record that first day off after previews and opening. And I was at that time, you know, very much into my countertenor quality. And so I sang really as beautifully as I could on stage and just gave all of that. And they scheduled me to sing a little bit of good at 9 a.m. in the morning. Oh, no. I kid you not, right? <laughs> and so, oh, my God, I got up at like 5. I'm warming up. I'm trying to get there. But it was still, it was not something you want to do at 9 a.m. So it wasn't the best take. It wasn't great. And they said, okay, you know what? We'll tape the orchestra. We're going to have you come back in a couple of days at 5 before the show. And you'll come back and you'll do that take. And that's what I did. And it was much better. It was much more representative of what I actually did on stage. Yeah. Then I also, the Weisslers were very generous with me because I had these opera contracts before I signed with Chicago. So I had to go away to do Julius Caesar with Virginia Opera. And I'm there while the record comes out, while the CD comes out. And I run to the CD store. Remember they used to have those, right? And I put the CD in the car, the rental car that I was using in Virginia. And I turn it on. And of course, I go right to my track, right? <laughs> and it's the 9am. Oh, no. <laughs> I could tell immediately that it was not the 5pm track. And I called Rob Fisher. I went, Rob, what happened? Why is this the 9am track? He goes, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let me tell you, we really compared them both. And he said, when it's just audio, when you don't have the visual, he said the 9am track had more character for her to be the matron, the older woman. He said, honestly, the 5pm track was like a little too young and fresh. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so what everybody hears now is my 9am track. Well, I listened to it last night and it sounded great. And I have a new you. appreciation for countertenors since seeing Farinelli and the King on Broadway. Oh, oh man, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Although I do wish, I mean, I would have loved to have been involved in that production yeah. and done the whole thing. I don't, don't have the guy stand off and sing. Someone can do that. Exactly. You know? That I didn't understand. You know, yeah. I kind of did, but 
I just thought, surely in the world, there is a countertenor who can Listen, act this part. <laughs> there is a countertenor who can act it. I know several of them. If it ever comes to Broadway again, just call me and I'll refer you to someone. You know, yeah. Can you talk about your work as a classical singer? Did you train for opera? Is that how you started? Yeah. It's so fascinating I, to me when people have these incredible abilities. Many people can sing, but not everybody can sing classical music. Yes, I often say that. Everybody can sing something. Not everybody can sing opera, but everybody can sing something. When I was picking colleges, I had an audition at one university for the acting department and the music department at the same exact time. And I did it that way on purpose. At that time, there was no music theater study in university. You either studied acting or you studied music, and music was always classical. So I get to the parking lot and I made a decision which way to go, right or left. And I was just a little bit more confident in my voice. And so I picked the music department. And I did not know that this is not normal, but my audition was only for the dean of the department. I walked into his office. He played the piano. I sang two arias. He put down the lid. He goes, okay, you're in. And that was it. And that was me as a tenor. Wow. Because I always, you know, my brother, again, my brother Ernie, you grow up listening to Ernie Sabella sing The Impossible Dream in the garage, and you're going to have an operatic voice. <laughs> because that was what I thought everybody did. That's what I thought everybody sounded like. Yeah. So I went through college, and in my last year of college, one of my very good friends, who has since passed, Michael Klausner, he comes down the hallway singing in his falsetto and singing an aria from, like, Norma. Bellini's Norma. And without thinking and never having done it before, I just joined in. Hmm. And that's how I discovered I had this freakishly high soprano voice. I had never thought about it before. And we just began to use it at parties. It was a party trick. It was something you just did for fun. And right out of college then, I auditioned for La Grande Chena, which was like for opera, what the ballet trucks were for ballet. And it was a troupe of 12 men who all got in drag and did these famous opera diva scenes of the classic operas. And I got in there and I was with them for five years. We toured 20 weeks a year. And at the end of my time with them, I began to think, oh, I should, should really take this seriously, right? Because that was just at the beginning of countertenors coming into prominence. Brian Asawa won the national competition at the Metropolitan Opera, first time ever. And I was in that audience when he sang, and I knew him. And I thought, oh, oh my God, I can do that. It really hit me, like, that's a viable option now, which I had not thought it was before. So then I went into two years of really intensive study of Baroque music and Baroque operas and the composers and the singers of the time and the traditions. And I came out the other side of that in 1995, and I began to do the competition circuit, as young singers do. And I won the Carnegie Hall Oratorio competition, and I won the Luciano Pavarotti International Voice Competition. And that is what put me on the map as a countertenor to win that competition. He was extremely generous with me. He called me out in the middle of my audition just a few seconds, this is a great little story, right? We, international finals, everyone has to come to Philadelphia 
and watch everyone else's audition from the balcony. And so we get there on Monday and I'm sitting on Monday and my audition is on Wednesday. I'm sitting on Monday, sitting on Tuesday, and he is not having a good week. I don't know whether he was not feeling well or whatever, but he was ripping into people. He told his one girl in Italian, in Italian, mind you, your father would be ashamed of you, right? Oh, like he no. was really, oh, he was ripping into people. But then he worked with her and she got much better and she was fantastic. But he was very, very hard on people. So when he hit the God mic, everyone kind of went, oh, what's he going to say? And I auditioned on Wednesday and I'm singing an aria from Rinaldo, Carasposa. And I get about halfway through and I'm singing a long pianissimo note. And after that note, he hits the God mic and everyone in the balcony gasps. And he stops me and he said, David, I have it on audio tape. I do. <laughs> I said, David, you have prepared this aria very well. You will sing this aria very beautifully on the concert meaning the winner's concert, because I don't have to hear to the end. This is excellent. Not good. Excellent. And the entire audience erupts in applause <laughs> like it had never happened before. And the competition director is motioning me off stage, like, okay, you're done. Okay, come on. Come on back. And th <laughs> Thank you, maestro. And I walked off stage. And that was Wednesday. And Thursday, I'm now like, you know, I can use the word hot stuff, you know, in the balcony. I'm like the yeah. hero of the balcony, right? And then on Friday, Usher comes through the balcony with a name placard with my name on it. I said, yes, I'm David Sabella. And she said, Maestro Pavarotti would like to hear you again. Now we're in Philadelphia. I'm at a host home 45 minutes away. I said, look, I'm in my jeans. I didn't bring my music. I thought I was done. I said, yeah. I can be back in 90 minutes on the dot. She goes, okay, hurry up. And 90 minutes on the dot, I returned in a suit ready to sing backstage and he says, is Mr. Sabella ready? And the competition director said, yes, he's right here. And he said, I don't have to hear him again. He said, I just wanted to see if he would play. And that was his way of saying, even though I bestowed this little kiss on you, you can't have a big head about it. And that was a great, great lesson for me. It's like whatever you think is the next big thing or you think whatever of yourself, it can change on a dime. So you have to remain humble and keep playing, keep offering, keep willing to do it. It was a great lesson. And that was my entree into classical music on a professional level. After that concert, the winner's concert, contracts just started coming in because all the impresarios, of course, go to the competition. And I was under contract, like I said, for Julius Caesar before Chicago came to Broadway. And the little unknown fact is I originally had to turn down Chicago. Because the original general manager called me and said, we want you to do the show. And I said, great, but I have a six-week contract to do Julius Caesar. First time in America that these three roles are being done by countertenors. So I got to go do it. Oh, no, you can't. You can't. You can't be out in January and February of a Tony Awards season. You can't do that. I'm like, then I have to pass. I'm under contract. I can't do it. Yeah. And it was dead in the water for like a month and a half. And then I get a call from Walter Bobby. And he's like, what, what's going on? What's wrong with you? I said, Walter, <laughs> you know, I'm under contract with Virginia Opera. Now, God bless that Walter Bobby's husband worked at the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, wow. So he knew exactly what I was talking about. He said, wait, give me, that's it? That's the whole problem? I said, yes. He goes, give me the dates. And I told him, he said, stay right there. And three minutes later, Fran Weisler calls me. 
And she said, I have the dates. We're going to let you out. We want you to open the show. And that's how I got to do the show. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I love that. Just what if Walter's husband hadn't been? Exactly. Right. <laughs> any any number. Minute. That is the beauty of life. Any number of occurrences, any little changes in circumstance. What do they call it? There are no coincidences. Right. Yeah. Could have been a totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I'm going to ask you a question about teaching because you do a great deal of it. Is that something you enjoy or is it like how you pay the bills or do you really, really enjoy teaching? It's both. It's both. <laughs> it is how I pay the bills on a day to day basis. And it certainly was while my kids were growing up. I have two daughters and when they were small, I couldn't travel and I couldn't be away I was doing Chicago when my first daughter was turning one and she learned to walk and she learned, and I was missing it all. And I thought, well, that's yeah. not why I adopted kids. So I left the show to rearrange my schedule so I could be there more for her. And I also talk about this a great deal in my show. We fostered several children and I adopted two of them and it was the bread and butter. And I've taught at many universities and taught both music theater and classical voice, et cetera. I do love it. I have to say, I do love it. It's the one thing, it's creative. It is inspiring when you see someone get it. People make strides in their vocal technique and the light goes on for them. And that's an amazing, that's an amazing experience to do that. Singing is much easier than people think. Singing is much easier than people want to make it, right? People think of singing as like a muscular activity. Your voice is an acoustical instrument. Learn how to play your acoustical instrument well. Don't bang on a guitar and expect it to make the right sound. Yeah. Right? That's kind of it. So I oh, do love wonderful. it. Wonderful. So it's been a while since performances have been able to take place in person. How do you feel about getting back on a stage? I'm so thrilled to be back. You know, I did a lot of Zoom concerts and online performances and getting back and especially getting back to Feinstein's 54 Below. I've been there as a guest. I've guested with Lorna Luft and on the Sondheim Unplugged shows, etc. In fact, I'm actually going to be with Lorna during her shows as well. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And the pandemic really made me realize something. I had been teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. And now my older daughter's in college, my younger one is in high school, and then this pandemic hit. And you come to think life is too short to not do what you were on this planet to do. And so I thought, I got to get back on stage. I got to actually sing more than teach. I really, I need to move into that direction. And that's one of the reasons why I'm at 54 Below this November, I thought I am going to put this show together and celebrate this anniversary. And I'm very happy to be doing so. I got to tell you, it's thrilling. Great. And also the show is going to be streaming online so that yep. folks who can't make it in person can enjoy it from home. So let's just talk a little bit about the show. You're celebrating the 25th anniversary. What else can audiences expect? I use the music of Chicago and several other songs from the Kandernab canon to talk about putting the show together. I go all the way from my first audition. I go all the way to my audition for City Center Encores, right up until my time with the show, right up until now, to be honest. What we've all been through between 2016 and 2020, and how that might be relevant to Chicago, of course, 
I detail it. I talk about stories, tidbits that people, of course, don't know, like things that were said to me by Annie, by Joel, things that are emblazoned in my memory that sort of helped create me to be who I am in that show and in life. I talk about adopting and going through that journey. I had about a decade of diapers, you know what I say? (laughs) And it's surprising how the music of the show interweaves and can be used to tell a different and unique story. I'll start right from all that jazz and work through When You're Good to Mama and the Roxy monologue and Billy's number, All I Care About, you know, but it's my story. It's not just the show. It's my story being told in that. And so I'm very proud of the show. I'm very proud of what we've been able to create. And my music director, Mark Hartman, is just phenomenal. I got to say, I have these crazy ideas. I put together these arrangements by recording the lyrics in my phone. I'm like, can we do this? Can we put these things together (laughs) like this? And two days later, it's done and there's something to rehearse. So it's a big creative effort and spirit. And it's really something. I even use a song from the movie Chicago. So I try to really run the whole gamut and talk about the many different facets of the show, the many different facets of Kander and Ebb in their canon and how it has related to my life fantastic it sounds amazing and we're so looking forward to it thank you david so much for taking the time to chat with us today we're so excited to have you perform at fine Sense 54 below live thank you Um, i am too you can catch david sabella as he celebrates the 25th anniversary of broadway's longest running american musical with the music of candor and ebb and featuring special guest stars jana robbins and Haley Swindle. The show is November 17 at 7 p.m. You've been listening to the Fine Science 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.